This presentation is from UX Australia 2019, Sydney. It gives me a great deal of pleasure in welcoming to the stage Aral Balkan. Thank you, Steve. And thank you for that introduction. Hi, everyone. We have a problem. And that problem is called surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism is about capitalism, which in turn is about the accrual of wealth, and surveillance, the accrual of information. What happens when those of us who have accrued wealth invest that wealth in mechanisms of surveillance, which gives us intimate insight into everyone's lives, which we then exploit to manipulate their behavior so that we can accrue more wealth. We get this feedback loop that we call surveillance capitalism. And this has given us a world in which a handful of people know everything about us, and we know nothing or next to nothing about them. A huge power differential. In the movie The Matrix, people live in a virtual space while their physical bodies are farmed in a physical space. Today, we live in the matrix inverted, where we live in a physical space, but we're increasingly being farmed from virtual spaces. And the people doing this farming are the first to tell us, don't worry about it. Privacy is dead, right? That's Mark Zuckerberg. But you have to understand here, when Mark says this, He's talking about your privacy. He's not talking about his privacy. Because when Mark buys a house, he buys the four houses around his house because his privacy is alive and well. Thank you very much. And yet Mark, at his corporation, Facebook Incorporated, has 60 people literally working on reading your mind. And whether or not these corporations should have all of this insight into our lives is a question you have to ask yourselves. But they're also sharing this information with governments. So here you can see the heads of some of the top corporations, tech corporations in the world, who amongst themselves have more information about more people than any organization has ever had in the history of mankind, sitting at the same table as then-president-elect Donald Trump. And who you sit at the table with matters. Here's another photograph. There you see Tim Cook, head of trillion-dollar company Apple, sitting at the same table with far-right Brazil, Brazilian president and psychopath Jair Bolsonaro. This is the man who is burning down the Amazon right now, and he's very proud of himself. He calls himself Nero for doing it. Who you sit at the table with matters. Here's another photograph from the 1930s. The elderly gentleman you see at the back is Thomas J. Watson, CEO of IBM. The other person that is at that table is Hitler. Why is he sitting at the table with Hitler? Because they were working together. In fact, they were working together so well that Thomas Watson got an award that, has never been award that was never awarded to any other foreigner during Hitler's regime for services to the Weimar Republic and to Nazi Germany. What kind of services are we talking about? I mean, was it hands-off? No. 
IBM, Edmund Black in his book, uh, IBM and the Holocaust, says, IBM maintained a customer site known as the Hollerith Department in virtually every concentration camp to sort or process punch cards and track prisoners. Hands on. IBM engineers had to create Hollerith codes, then print the cards, configure the machines, train the staff. Training is important, we can all agree, right? and continuously maintain the fragile systems every two weeks on site in the concentration camps. What kind of codes are we talking about? Well, 001 meant Auschwitz. 002 was Buchenwald. 003 was Dachau. There were other codes. Three meant that you were a homosexual. Nine, that you were antisocial. Twelve meant that you were a gypsy and eight meant that you were a Jew. There were yet other codes to describe how you were murdered. Four was an execution. Six was special treatment, which was a euphemism for the gas chamber. Edwin Black, in the same book, says IBM Business Machines and its president, uh, International Business Machines, sorry, and its president, Thomas J. Watson, committed genocide by any standard. But that's not the scariest part of that book. That's not the scariest quote from that book. The thing that scares me most from that book is this quote. He says, it was never about the anti-Semitism. It was never about national socialism. That's not what they cared about. It was always about the money. Business was their middle name. Well, guess what, folks? Business is still their middle name. So what are they doing these days, huh? Well. They don't have mainframe computers anymore. Today, they have artificial intelligence. What did they name? Who did they name their artificial intelligence after? Mr. Thomas J. Watson, decorated by Hitler himself. Awesome. What else are they doing today? Turns out they were implementing the video surveillance program for Rodrigo Duterte in Indonesia, the man who as, may as mayor had killing squads, death squads. Turns out they were working with the US government to implement the drone program, which is fine because it only kills mostly you know, people of a certain color, I guess. When Donald Trump came to power, the current CEO of IBM couldn't wait to congratulate him and to say, I'm really looking forward to working with you. Let's try and make your dream happen, Donald. Let's try and make it happen. One of their employees, Elizabeth Wood, resigned. And she said, I found it terrifying. Her letter made me take a look at the work I was doing and say, why? What am I contributing to? We are at a stage right now where every one of you in this room has to ask yourselves this question. Why? What am I contributing to? Ask it honestly and then listen to yourself. And if you feel that you're unhappy about it, know that you can change it. There are many ways that you can change it. Who you are is not defined by who you work for today. I don't care if you work at IBM today. That's not who you are. That's not who you can be. She went on to say, when the president-elect follows through on his repeated threats to create a public database of Muslims, what will IBM do? Your letter neglects to mention. But IBM responded to this. 
IBM spokesperson said IBM would not work on this hypothetical project. Our company has long-standing values and a strong track record of opposing discrimination against anyone on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, or religion. That perspective has not changed and never will. So what about that little blip? The Holocaust, remember that? What happened there? So IBM was asked about this. One of their other spokespersons, uh, spokespeople, said uh, Carol Makovich, she said, IBM does not have much information about this period. We are a technology company. We are not historians. Well, fuck you, Carol. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe it's time that we all became historians to some degree or other so that we do not repeat the atrocities of our very, very near past. Maybe we need to do that. It's not just IBM. Who's heard of Peter Thiel and Palantir? They're everywhere now, a couple of you, right? Palantir, anyone know where that comes from? It's the name of the all-seeing eye used by the evil sorcerer in The Lord of the Rings. They're not even hiding it, folks. They're not hiding it, okay? This is not some conspiracy. They're like, this is what we're doing. And so what does a government like Denmark's government say? Hey, come on in, Palantir. Come on in, let's do a contract with you, 84 months. Let's give you all of the information that we have on our citizens. CCTV video, license plate reader records. Why? We want you to do pre-crime for us. Minority Report, you remember that film, pre-crime? Yeah, we want you to do that for us. We want you to tell us which one of our citizens are terrorists, are going to be terrorists. Tell us that, right? Peter Thiel, by the way, is one of Donald Trump's donors. He's one of those right-wing donors of Donald Trump. Um, they actually had to pass an exemption to the EU Data Protection Act, the GDPR, in order to be able to do this. And what else is happening, for example, in Europe? Well, the EU is going to create a gigantic biometric database with the biometric information of all EU citizens. Who do you think is going to then have access to that database through Denmark and through their data sharing with Palantir? Oh, gave it away. And if you think that's, like, if you're kind of right now going, ooh, okay, so I don't like, uh, I don't like IBM, I haven't really talked about Google or Facebook yet, maybe a little Facebook, Palantir, I'm getting a little scared. You ain't seen nothing yet, right? If you haven't heard of a company called SoftBank, who's heard of SoftBank here? Yeah, a couple of you, all right. This is Masayoshi-san, CEO of SoftBank. And he's created one of the largest, the largest actually, venture capital fund in the world. A hundred billion dollar venture capital fund, larger than anything that's in Silicon Valley. In fact, he's working on a second 100 billion fund as we speak. And 45 billion of that hundred billion dollars, do you know where it comes from? You might have heard of this, um, this gentleman called Mohammed bin Salman. Um, he's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, really lovely guy. Um, he doesn't like journalists. So, you know, if you are a journalist and you go to one of his embassies, you might be brutally murdered and then chopped up into little pieces, you know, snip, snip. Um, but that's okay. 
that's all right. As the CEO of HSBC and, and other business leaders have told us, you know, there's a bright future in Saudi Arabia after that murder. That's okay. We're undeterred by that sort of thing because business is our middle name, right? It's really important. So don't worry about it. That's all just body parts under the bridge. We're okay with that. Um, so he's, he's, the, uh, he's, he's one of the biggest... Uh, um, contributors to this $100 billion technology venture capital fund. Who else is partnering with him, with this lovely guy? You might have heard of some of the companies. Apple, right, a trillion dollar company, um, who really keeps stressing that they care about our human rights, right? They, about our privacy. Um, Foxconn, Qualcomm, Sharp, um, they contributed another $20 billion to this fund. They're working together. Um, so what are they doing? Their CEO of the fund says, our view is that companies need to scale first. Get as big as they can. Once you scale, you'll get everything else right. Or maybe you define what right is at that point, right? What this reminds me of is a quote from Edward Abbey. Growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. Think about that, right? What is cancer? When cells forget their actual function and can only concentrate on one thing, growth, growth, growth. What is the ideology of Silicon Valley? Growth, 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 right? What is it really about, though? Well, one of their managing partners laid it out. It's really about data, data. And the merger of human and machine in this notion of the singularity and artificial intelligence. This is what the $100 billion fund is really about. Data runs across almost every one of our companies. The person who wrote this article in Wired said, that's Masayoshi Son's vision, a future where every time you use a smartphone, you call a taxi, order a meal, stay in a hotel, make a payment, receive medical treatment, You'll be doing so in a data transaction with a company that belongs to the SoftBank family. And as Sun likes to say, whoever controls data controls the world. How are we all doing? We know the ramifications of this toxic, toxic system, right? We've seen them. We can't ignore them anymore. Cambridge Analytica, a tiny company with a small subset of Facebook's data and none of their algorithms was able to sway the presidential elections in the United States and the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. This man is the new prime minister of the UK, by the way. I guess Idiocracy was just a documentary from the future. And why is this important? Because Cambridge Analytica and Facebook have the same business model. And here's how it works. Facebook has two audiences that it services. One, it's users. We call them users, don't we? This is user experience Australia, isn't it? We are one of two industries that uses that term user, right? The other are drug dealers. Think about that. So they have their users and they have their customers. Now, the users are you. What they do is they track everything that you, they, that you do, they store it forever, they analyze it continuously to build profiles of you. They track what? Your data, 
but they build the profiles, and the profiles are the things that are really valuable. And that's what they monetize with their actual customers, the companies, organizations that actually pay them. You don't. You're the livestock. Your job is to get farmed. Companies like Facebook and Google are factory farms for human beings. That is their business model. I call it people farming. So this world is far greater, of course. It's, it's, it starts with the, with, with the funding models, with venture capital. It is the world of startups. Startup does not mean any new organization, any new company. It's a, it's a Silicon Valley brand. It's a certain type of temporary company that either has to fail fast or grow astronomically, grow exponentially, right? That's part of Ray Kurzweil's Church of Exponential Growth. It's unicorns, right? We need billion-dollar unicorns. And that's the thing, you know, I mean, if you want to know how I feel about this, I made this little illustration of a cloud throwing up a rainbow on a unicorn. But the bit that scares me the most about all this is that church of exponential growth. Because let me tell you what exponential growth looks like. Let me tell you what infinite growth with finite resources looks like with an analogy. You take a Petri dish, put some nutrients in that Petri dish, put a few bacteria into that Petri dish and seal it. Generation upon generation, those bacteria will thrive. They will eat those nutrients and they will thrive and they will grow exponentially until they reach their most successful state one or two generations before they go extinct because of lack of resources. That's exponential growth. That is infinite growth with finite resources. If you need me to spell it out for you, the Petri dish is the world and we are the bacteria. The question is, can we be smarter than bacteria in a Petri dish? And that is the problem. Now, if I were to leave it here, you would possibly be quite depressed at this point. So it's important to have a, an honest appraisal of the problem, but let's move beyond it. What does the solution look like? What are aspects of the solution? What is the general shape of the solution or solutions that we could explore? Now, again, this is a social problem, not just a technology problem. But on the technology side of things, it's very clear. We, the people, must own and control our data, our devices, our technologies, all of it. We need to control it as individuals. So let me just go into detail on this, because this is a really important point. Very simple one, but very important. We get it wrong all the time. Let's have a little flowchart. Who should own and control the data, OK? The question you need to ask is, is it data about you? What kind of data are we talking about? Because we say data, we use it as a generic, and we could have data about rocks, and we could have data about people. What happens if we create policies that conflate the two? Who gets the shorter end of the stick there, the rock or the person? Because I think it's the person. So we've got to be really careful about understanding what we mean when we say data. Data by itself, unqualified, is meaningless. Is it data about you? Yes. Who should own and control it? You. What other type of data is there? Is it data about the world, about the commons? Then the commons should own and control it. Now, what do you not see here? Should corporations own and control our data? I mean, if you've been listening to the first half, right? probably no, right? Um, should nations, though? There's an idea. Should we privatize Facebook? Fuck no, right? Um, the only thing worse than a corporation having all of your information 
is a government with a police force and a military attached having all of your information. And again, remember that these are not two separate things. They work together. But should we, for example, like some of the people on the left-wing progressive side of things say, like Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, should we have a British digital corporation? No. For that very reason, right? For that very reason. Jeremy's saying this because he trusts himself and he trusts the Labour Party, right? But remember, Eric Schmidt, CEO of uh, Google, would say the same thing because he trusts himself and his friends. In the same vein, should it be cities? Because now we're getting some progressive uh, groups saying, like Yevgeny, for example, Yevgeny Morozov and Francesca Bria in Barcelona, saying, well, no, nations shouldn't. That's a bit too dangerous. But why don't we make it so that cities own and control your data? What's Yevgeny saying here? Well, Francesca and I are good people. We work in Barcelona. We're trying to do something good. I trust myself. Same thing, right? Should we be deploying socialized big data and artificial intelligence? No. No. Look back to the 1930s again. In Amsterdam, when they made a census, they just wanted to know, you know the demographics that they were faced with. When Hitler invaded, that census became the way that they could find out who was Jewish and who wasn't. Right? The question we should be asking ourselves is, OK, I trust myself and my friends. Who's going to be in power next? Do we trust them? You're going to trust Trump when he's in power? Because we trusted Obama, right, in the US. And we let him build a surveillance state. And then when Trump came to power, we're like, wait, we didn't, we didn't see that one coming. Ooh, now he's got all these little toys to play with. Should you be the one? Yes. This is not rocket science, people. If it's data about you, you should have ownership and control of it. Why? What is data? Let me give you another analogy. What if there's an object, a cube? If I have enough data about this cube, I can take a 3D scanner, scan it in, and a 3D printer and create an almost exact replica of this cube. I want you to think what I could do if I have enough data about you. And let me tell you, I don't want to 3D scan you or 3D print you or anything. What I do want to do is to own you. I can't own you. We used to do that. That was slavery 1.0, right? I could own your whole body and everything that goes with it. We don't do that anymore. We kind of don't, you know, we were like, ooh, that was, what did we do there? Oops, ouch. But I can own everything else about you that makes you who you are apart from your body today. That's legal, right? Remember, slavery was legal, right? Slavery still exists in the world. It's just illegal now. Slavery 2.0 is legal. I can own everything else about you apart from your body. I don't actually need your body. I have a very valuable proxy by which to manipulate your behavior and to get you to do what I want you to do. In fact, if the data I have about you is wrong, if it's bad, you still don't win. Because then I think you're a terrorist when you're not a terrorist. Either way, you lose. We have to start to understand that data about us, if there's enough of it and we have the right algorithms, begins to approach us. Data about you is you. And we have to understand the nature of the battle that we're faced with. This is a battle for personhood. We are experiencing a personhood crisis today. That's one of the reasons why a couple of years back I published the Universal Declaration of Cyborg Rights. What is cyborg rights? It's just a hack on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to say that today, if we use technology, digital network technology, to expand, to extend our minds and to extend our beings, ourselves, 
then we need to extend the human rights we have to that expanded notion of the self. Otherwise, we can't protect the self because we're no longer confined within our biological borders. As a person, aspects of you live in a cloud somewhere today, and you do not have control over that aspect of yourself. We need to change that. There are no such things as digital rights, or some, some people call me like a cyber rights activist. There's, I'm, not a cy I'm a cyborg rights activist, because today we are all cyborgs. You don't have to implant yourself with technology. If you use a phone, a smartphone, you're a cyborg. You extend your biological capabilities using technology. So we need to be able to protect these new boundaries of the self. Um, but yeah, the people who tell you there are digital rights, etc., they're trying to make those lesser rights than the human rights we already have. We need to make sure that we protect the human rights we have and apply them to this new notion of the self in the digital and networked age. So what does it look like in practice? What can we do? How can we combat surveillance capitalism? How can we make some alternatives? Well, it's simple. We regulate and we replace. It's not simple. It's simple theoretically. It's not simple in practice, right? Um, in theory, practice is simple, I guess, or something. Um, regulation. In Europe, we have the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is probably the most progressive regulation we have for data protection. But data protection is not enough. Data protection is what you do once your data has already been collected by some entity like Facebook and Google, and you turn to them and you go, please, sir, be kind. Please don't hurt us too much. That's data protection. Better than nothing, right? But what can we do beyond that? Maritza Schake, uh, ex-MEP uh, for the Netherlands, she wrote an article recently saying, we're largely unaware of the impact algorithmic ranking has on people's choices because we have no way of looking under the hood. She didn't use the term, but what she's calling for here, whether she knows it or not, is algorithmic transparency. That's the next step. Data protection is the base. Beyond that, we need to, add, we need to tell these companies, we want to see your algorithms. Show us your algorithms. We need to know exactly what you're doing. That's the next step. But actually, if we wanted to kill surveillance capitalism tomorrow, we could do it with a single regulation, right? And that would be a data minimization regulation. So a hypothetical that I put forward a few months back, GDMR would kill surveillance capitalism, the general data minimization regulation. And it would be very simple. It's, it fits into a single slide. There are three things we would have to stipulate. One. If your data and algorithms can be kept on your device, they must be. If technology can be built this way, we must legislate that it must be built this way. And most technology can. It's very rare that a, that a company has to collect your data in order to give you the features they say they want to give you. Two, any device that holds your data must be end-to-end -end encrypted. Three, only you hold the keys and you control who the ends are in that end-to-end -end encryption. You pass this law tomorrow, you kill surveillance capitalism tomorrow. Don't hold your breaths. There is absolutely zero political will for anything approaching anything that looks like this. Why? Why are our policymakers not even thinking about this, talking about this? Well, because our institutions are corrupt. Lobbying, the influence of corporate finance in public policymaking. The New Yorker had an article because Elizabeth Warren was calling for regulating big technology, big tech. And in it, they quoted something that Eric Schmidt said to me a while back. 
um, said Google alone spent more than $21 million on lobbying last year. That's just in the US, that's not Europe and elsewhere. Much of it to stave off regulation. Aral Balkan put this in perspective. This is what Eric Schmidt told me a few years ago when I first started really becoming aware of these issues, because I was part of the mainstream. I, was, I thought we were doing good. You know, I thought we were doing what we were saying we were doing. So they got me as well, and I don't like being duped. Um, he said to me, I wake up every morning, he's the executive chairman of Google, he was, and I fight regulation. It's what I do, it's my job. So when they talk about self-regulation, when they talk about, oh, we're trying to do the right thing, know that it is bullshit. They know exactly what their jobs are. And then we have revolving doors, right? It's not just lobbying, we have revolving doors. What does that mean? People who are working to protect your rights as policymakers today will be working at the same companies they should be regulating tomorrow, right? I was presenting at this conference called Nordic Privacy Arena uh, in Stockholm, in Sweden. And this was a data protection conference of data protection officers, the people who are tasked with protecting your data. And Facebook had a keynote at the event. We learned how to make a Facebook ad. And here's the worst bit. The guy who was presenting that, his previous job was at the data protection office in France. And then we have the doctors and the cigarette ads. And these folks are really harmful, right? We have conferences like CPDP, Data Protection and Democracy. What a great conference. Maybe I should speak there. Who are they sponsored by? Oh, Facebook and Google. Ah, so Facebook and Google must be fine if they're allowed to sponsor a data protection, right? I mean, if you have a health conference and Philip Morris is sponsoring, that's okay, right? Philip Morris's are fine. Philip Morris is fine for your health. We even have organizations like the Free Software Foundation who see nothing wrong with putting their logo next to Google and legitimizing them with the amazing legitimacy that they have. Then we have the people that we think you know, are, are supposed to be out there protecting us, right? Mozilla, who loves Mozilla? Defenders of the open web, Mozilla, right? They love your human rights, they're defending it. Do you, do you know how, uh, how much money Mozilla gets from Google every year? Do you, do you any idea? $50, $100? Several hundred million dollars? Yeah, you got it. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, I spent eight years as Mozilla, Jonathan Nightingale said uh, on Twitter, working on Firefox, and for almost all that time, Google was our biggest partner. Revenue share on search drove 90% of Mozilla's income. Let me tell you something. You go out there and you're all like, we're here to protect your privacy. You don't then make Google your default search engine and take hundreds of millions from them. You're not here to protect our privacy. We have democratically elected governments in countries like Denmark who are giving up their democratic legitimacy and sending ambassadors to Silicon Valley. It is not the role of a government to send an ambassador to corporations. It is the role of a government to regulate corporations. The only legitimacy corporations don't have that they really desire is democratic legitimacy. That's what a democratically elected government has. That's the power they have over corporations. You send an ambassador to them, then you're saying, we're giving that one up. And then is your government more powerful when it comes to money and how they can spend money? No, the corporations are. So they've given up the only card they have. We have organizations like Singularity University that we take at face value. Do they exist in Australia? They're big in Europe now, Silicon Valley. They're not a university. They're a lobbying front. But they have the ear, for example, in Denmark of the prime minister. And at the very least, maybe what we shouldn't be doing is having members of European Parliament, for example, who after a hearing in which they're supposed to be taking Mark Zuckerberg to task, 
take a freaking selfie with him. There are little things we can do to start you know, changing things. Maybe just don't take the selfie. Let's start with that. But this is all legislative regulation. And it's hard, because we're institutionally corrupt. You know, we have to push for that, but I'm not holding my breath. We can also technologically regulate them. We don't have to ask. We don't have to go through this whole process. Uh, Laura and I, we make a, a, better, a, a, a tool called Better Blocker. Um, it's free and open source, like everything that we do. And it's available on uh, Mac and iOS, as well as an app that you can buy and support us with. And that blocks their trackers. Right? It doesn't ask. It's not, do not track, please. It's, we're just going to stop you from tracking people as the best that we can. So we try. That's only a stopgap. Right? That's, that's not going to change the system. It's just trying to prevent the harms. That's all regulation can do. Regulation can reduce the harms in a harmful system. It can't actually change it. Right? And it's naive to assume that you can as well, from the inside or from the outside. If Facebook, for example, is a factory farm for human beings, what it's never going to become is an animal sanctuary. Never. Those are two different things. So don't, don't expect that. You'll just be really um, let down. There's also social regulation, and this is where every one of us can play a role. In Berlin, when Google tried to set up their campus, they started a protest called Fuck Off Google. And guess what? It worked. For now. Google backed down. They said, we're not going to do it, and you know, we'll review our decision in a few years. This is the other thing you have to understand. Billion and trillion dollar interests do not go away. They rest and then they come back. They can afford to do that. But it works. So um, in Wired, there was another article about, uh, for example, Facebook and, and uh, the trials that they've been having recently. And, and someone who worked there, a product manager, said, when I joined Facebook, people would stop and say, it's so cool. That's not the case anymore. It made it hard to go home for Thanksgiving. Good. This is how we change things. This reminds me of the other thing Eric told me that really formed my thinking on this. He said, if we ever become too evil as Google, we won't find anyone to work for us. And um, I sent him a tweet recently you know, when uh, someone told me that they were headhunted by Google and they told them, fuck no, because of who you are. And so I sent him a little link to that tweet saying, it's happening. Can you see it's happening? But that's the role all of you can play with no effort whatsoever. Just the next time someone you know sells their startup to Google, instead of saying congratulations, go, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you contributing to the system that is hurting our democracies and our human rights? Regulation is one thing. We can also replace them. We already have stopgaps. We already have things we can do. Things that maybe are not perfect. You're going to buy a phone. You're looking at Android phones and, and iPhones. Is Apple perfect by any means? I mean, you probably understand that I'm not their biggest fan. No trillion dollar company is your friend, right? But buy the Apple phone. Why? The only thing you can trust with these companies is their business models and how they make money. Apple has an absolute competitive advantage in privacy today, which they can throw away. They can be stupid about it. But it's the one thing they can compete on that would make Google go bankrupt. Google can compete on the, specs, on the specs of your screen, on the quality of the camera. They can compete on all of that. If Google tomorrow tried to give you, uh, gave you an actually private experience, they would go bankrupt, because that's how they make money, by eroding your privacy. Apple can do it without breaking a sweat. They make money by selling you expensive devices, right? None of this is perfect. So what does it mean? You have to be rich to have privacy? Yes, of course, the rich have always had privacy. We need to change that as well.
But today, you want to make a decision, vote with your dollars within the current capitalistic system that we have, in which you know, that's our agency, apparently, then you know, at least protect yourself. There are private messaging applications like Wire that you can use. So stop using uh, WhatsApp owned by Facebook. Yeah, sure. Um, they say right now that the content of your messages is, is encrypted, but your metadata isn't. And it's linked to your social graph on Facebook. So they know who you're talking to, when you're talking to them, all of this metadata. What is metadata? Um, I think it was someone from the CIA who said we kill people based on metadata, right? If someone talks to a known terrorist, then they get a drone strike on their head because they think, okay, it must be a terrorist. Use alternatives like fast mail. They exist. I believe they're Australian. I'm not sure. Are they? Does anyone know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very interesting story there. I can't get into it right now, but uh, yeah. They were all part of this whole system, and then they got spat out by it. Um, long story. Tutanota, encrypted email. Instead of Twitter, or in addition to Twitter, explore federated alternatives, like Mastodon. It exists today. You can have your own Twitter for one, or maybe for your family, and that can talk to everyone else's Twitter, Mastodon, to their Twitter.com, not an account. You can actually run your own Twitter, or have someone run it for you. But all of these Twitters can talk to each other. On Twitter, Twitter decides what you can say. Twitter's algorithms decide what you see, just like on Facebook. Every tweet you send doesn't get sent to everyone on your, who is following you. Twitter decides which ones get seen, just like Facebook decides which one of your posts gets seen. And if you want to see a whole list of alternatives that you have today that you can use, go to switching.social. And you know what? If you're going to tell me, oh, but all my friends are on WhatsApp, and how do I get them to you know, download Wire? And, and if your friends cannot open up their app store on their phone and tap once to download an app to protect your privacy as well, maybe you need to reconsider whether they're your friends. Because they will do that shit for Candy Crush Saga. In like, you know, just not even a thought. There are people who are really thinking about the whole experience around them. Companies like System76 have built hardware, software based on Linux, but which they tweak for their hardware to so have control over the whole experience. And it's getting better and better. In fact, I'm running it on my laptop over here right now. I created this whole presentation in, in it. This presentation is HTML and CSS. It's running actually, um, uh, even the illustrations, uh, it's running actually in a video switcher right now on my laptop. So I can switch between things, as you'll see in a second. Um, so this stuff works. Play with it at least. You know, don't ignore it. Um, there's a company called Purism in the United States who's coming out with laptops for everyday people. They have control over the hardware, the software, and now services, which is what you need. You need full control over these things in order to have control over the experience. It's what Apple has, right? Um, and they're coming out with a phone called Libram 5. It's not going to be the best thing ever when it first comes out. But you know what? Neither was the iPhone, actually, the first one. I had it. I was sitting in the audience when Steve Jobs announced it. Ironically, I was talking about Flash in the next session after that. Uh, <laughs> this is my other life. Um, but this is very exciting to me because also they've adopted our principles on ethical design. And ethical design is a, a, a very simple concept, right? It's about respect for three things. Respect for human rights, respect for human effort, and respect for human experience. 
Now, we all, in everything that we do in UX, right, build things to respect human effort and human experience. But if we're working for companies that are venture capital funded, whose business model is surveillance capitalism, then we're not respecting human rights. In which case, we're not practicing design. We're practicing decoration. Because our core is rotten. The core of our businesses are rotten. And if we were to present that to people as it is, if Google was to come to you and say, hi, thank you for coming here. We're going to watch everything that you do. We're going to track you across the web. We're going to build a profile of you. And we're going to exploit that information to manipulate your behavior to make more money. None of you would use it. That's why they need decorators. Decorators have to build the beautiful flesh around that rotten core of the apple, right? so that you don't get a whiff of that, of that core. You have to make the, the rind really shiny right, to hide all of that. You're not designing there. You're decorating. So ask yourselves, am I designing or am I decorating? So what's missing in all of this, though? So we have stuff that's happening. This is what I'm working on and what we're working on. Um, let me tell you what I'm not working on. First, you hear this thing. If privacy is dead, you know, maybe we should sell our own data. No. No. We did not make slavery illegal because we thought everyone should be selling their own bodies, right? Although you might argue that's what capitalism is. I don't know. Um, we did it because we thought, hey, look, everyone deserves dignity, right? So the reason you should have control over your own selves is not so you can sell it. If you want to, go ahead. That's okay. But that shouldn't be the primary motivator. It should be because we believe people deserve dignity and that we should have dignity as humans. And it's not about blockchain, okay? Please be careful of blockchain oil salespeople. All right, these are, blockchain is mostly, 99%, a right libertarian masturbation fantasy that translates our natural habitat through electricity into money in the pockets of a very few right libertarians, okay? So this is not about blockchain. There are technologies within the stack of blockchain. You don't need proof of work that you can use and make use of, but it's not blockchain. So what is the problem? The problem is we have all these things coming out. We have purisms, phones, and, and devices, but they still connect to a large degree to these centralized services that farm you. We need to replace that with something. And we need to do, I believe, the opposite of what we're always told. We're always told to think big. I'm going to ask you to think small. I want you to think about how we can do technology differently if we're working on small technology. What's small technology? It, they're everyday tools for everyday people designed to increase human welfare, not corporate profits. Important, everyday tools for everyday people, right? Not tools by startups for startups, not tools by enterprises for enterprises, not tools by startups for people to exploit them by people, for people. And then you get certain principles that come out of that. These things have to be easy to use or no one's going to use them. They're personal. They have to be personal. They need to be private by default because that's the only definition of privacy that matters. Right? If you don't have the original uh, right to decide, do I keep this to myself or share it with others? That is the definition of privacy. Do you have the right to keep it to yourself or share it with others? Then you don't have privacy. It's not an option that you opt into. We must release them under share-alike and interoperable licenses. Why? So that we're non-colonial in our design. One group designing for another group 
is always a colonial relationship. A diverse group designing for themselves is non-colonial. If we don't have that diversity, we can still design for ourselves, but we can do it in a way where other groups can take the basics of what we have and specialize them for their own needs. What we can't do is arrogantly, anthropologically, colonially say, we know what's best for everyone. That's what Silicon Valley says, right? We, the white people of Silicon Valley, know what's best for everyone. We can't do that. And just yesterday, or the day before, I think, my time zones are messed up, um, somewhere between Singapore and Australia in the air, um, we announced the Small Technology Foundation in order, a not-for-profit based in Ireland where we are now, um, to actually advocate for this and to build examples of it. So you can see that at smalltech.org. So what does this look like? Well, we're calling it our research and development project Tin Can. And it's very simple. What we're building is a bridge between a peer-to-peer -peer network and the centralized web. So imagine a peer-to-peer -peer network where your data stays on all of your own devices. Only you have the keys. But one of the nodes is a web node that's always on, that's always findable, and is entirely untrusted. Today, we trust the web. This web node is entirely untrusted. It can be hosted by anyone, and no one can actually see what's on it, even the people hosting it, right? Why is that important? So we have these trusted nodes, untrusted. Why is that important? Because peer-to-peer -peer networks have two experience issues. One is findability, because how do I find you on a peer-to-peer -peer network? Well, here you can have a domain name. Okay, that works. So I can be at my own domain name, and I can find you. And if we all had our own domain names, we could find each other. The other is availability. If all your devices are off, then I can't send you a message in a peer-to-peer -peer network. But if you have one node that's always on, and it can get those messages, but it can't see them and store them, and the moment you turn your phone on, it comes to you, then you've gotten rid of that user experience. Well, I hate the word user, that experience issue. And we can be private between our nodes as we're talking. But we're not there yet. Because we also lack developer tools. We lack the tools to build the everyday things. Because all of our developer tools are coming out of startups and enterprises to meet the needs of startups and enterprises. Right? So we need those first. And that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, so Site.js is the precursor to TinCan. So what's Site.js? Well, I want to give you a little demonstration of it right now. Um, Site.js is a tool where we've had the web for 25 years. What would web development look like if it was built for the needs of individuals? What if one person could actually deploy a website in 30 seconds? This is important to create those web nodes. Let me just show you quickly what I mean by that. So I'm just going to go into a terminal here, and I'm just going to connect to my My Demo site. This is a server that I got. This is the hardest bit. I'm not showing you the hardest bits. You have to get a domain name right now. You need to get a, a server, and you need to point it to it, right? We need to fix these issues. But right now, on the developer side, I'm on my server. This server doesn't have anything installed. So I'm going to go to sitejs.org. I hope the uh, internet connection holds up. Please do not stream anything. Um, and here, I'm just going to copy this installation line. And I'm going to paste it in here. And I'm going to run it. It's downloading. It's installing. It's installed. OK? And I'll just create a demo directory in there. And I'm going to go into that demo directory. Let's create a website, shall we? Echo. 
Hello, UX Australia. Can I spell? No, I'm a developer. There we go. Um, and then I'm just going to put that into an index.html file. Let me make it a little smaller. Can you still see it? OK. So that's a website. OK, the web is very forgiving, thank goodness. Um, and it's just that one thing. So I want to now deploy a production server. OK, should we do that? A secure production server. So I'm going to say site enable. All right? And it's going to say, oh, I'm running for the first time. I'm going to do a few things. I'm done. Now I'm going to go into my browser and go into my-demo.site. It's going to take a little longer. Do you see it's doing a handshake? What it's doing there is it's getting your secure certificates, your TLS certificates for you. And once that's loaded, there we go. We've just deployed a website <laughs> over HTTPS. Okay, you're the first people, apart from the meetup that was in uh, a few days ago with UX, uh, IXDA and the UX Book Club, et cetera, um, that are seeing this. Okay? Um, okay, that's great. I can leave this now. It will survive restarts, et cetera. It's a production server, secure production server running there. Um, but this is not how we develop, right? We don't SSH into a box and we, don't, we develop locally and then we, we uh, sync. So what would that look like? Well, let me exit from there. And now I'm on my local demo folder. There's nothing there. Um, and let me just create a, a different uh, file. I'm just going to say echo. Um, this is local. And I'll just put that into index.html. Okay. Now I'm just going to run site. Site is installed on my machine already. And I'm going to say site sync to okay, my demo site. All right. And what that's going to do is it's going to sync it to my demo site. So now if I hit my demo site, it says this is local. It's not local. It's lying to you. Of course, that's live. You can all hit that. So you can go to my demo site. It's live. Um, so I've just synced. And it's keeping the sync going. So if I now go over here and in a different window, I start my code editor, for example, and I say, how do you like this? And I save it. And I go to my demo site and I refresh. And if the internet is fast enough, come on. How do you like this? All right, so it's, it's keeping that sync going as well. That's pretty cool. OK, I like that. Um, what else can we do? Is it all, you know, um, is it all uh, static? Static's great. No. You can also build dynamic sites using everything that Node.js has without knowing any of that. Let me show you how. So here I'm going to stop this sync. I'm going to clear this. I'm going to create a folder called dynamic, dot dynamic, okay? And in that dynamic folder, I'm just going to create maybe a counter, okay? I'm going to say create a counter.js file. And I'm going to go back to my code editor here. And I'll open that counter file that I have, okay? We're going to create a counter, a dynamic page. It's just going to tell you how many times it's been loaded. Okay, so let's do that. I'm going to say let counter equals zero, and then I'm going to say module exports. Don't worry about this right now. You'll see it looks e easier as it goes. Request response. This is the request that's going to come in from uh, the client. Okay, and I'm going to say response type is HTML, and I want you to send this piece of HTML that I'm writing. Okay, um, and I'm going to just say you, wait, this page has been loaded. And here I'll say 
plus plus counter, I'll, I'll increment the counter as well, times, but of course that's going to start at one, right? Um, and it's going to be one times, and we don't like that. So let's just make it just a little nicer, and we'll say uh, counter equals to one. Mm -hmm. Then don't put a suffix. If not, put a suffix. You're learning coding. It's amazing. That's it. I've created a dynamic site now. So here I'm just going to say site to run it locally. And if I hit it at localhost, uh, I'll see the page that I had. If I hit localhost forward uh, slash counter and refresh, I have a dynamic page. Okay? So this is kind of like bringing the simplicity of PHP back in the day to JavaScript. So that's all you needed to write. And remember, you could deploy this just like I did the other one. You have a secure dynamic site running. That's a counter. It's a bit shit. But I'm the only one who can hit this counter right now. That sucks. What if, you, what if I wanted to show you what I'm working on on my, on my device? What if I wanted to give you access? Watch this. I'm going to say site at hostname. Okay? And that's created the site now at dev.ar.al. And the way I have that pointing my, to my site is I'm using a, serv a service like ngrok that does that. So I'm going to start that. And now, if you go to dev.aral forward slash counter on your devices, okay, um, and you refresh, then you will see the counter update as well. I've given you access. That's coming off of my computer here right now. I've just given you access to my computer. So for staging, et cetera, right? And the, there's no magic here. What it's doing is it's wrapping Node.js. So anything you can do in Node.js, you can actually do here as well. Oh, do, you see, do you see that? That's all of you hitting it. <laughs> Where's my counter at? Let's see. Wow, OK, you determined a bunch. OK, perfect. I'm going to stop that now, so you're going to get errors, all right? Um, but so that's, that's, that's staging that you can do with it. Um, you can do anything you can do in Node.js. So in the same way, if I go into my dynamic folder, for example, and um, I create, let's, let's make a, an example called uh, cows, okay? And for this, I need to create ASCII cows, right? So I'm going to, ins I'm going to initialize an M, uh, a node uh, project, and I'll call it moo. And here I'll just use the defaults for everything but the license, which we're going to use AGPL. 3.0 or later, because it's share alike, okay? It doesn't matter right now, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so, and then I'm going to install this module called cows. With Node.js, you have this huge vari variety of, of functionality and modules that you can use. So I've just installed cows onto my machine. <laughs> I love this. Uh, let's make use of the cows. So I'm going to open the cows here, and I'm going to require, I'm going to say const cows equal require cows. I'm just going to run that. That's going to create a bunch of an array of random ASCII cows. Okay? And then I'm going to just make my root again. I'm, I, all I need to do is, is, is have my root. So I'm going to say request response here, just like before. Um, and instead, I'm going to, instead of a counter, I'm going to put out a, a random cow. Okay? Should we do that? Um, so I'll say const random cow equals uh, cows, let's get the random, uh, a random cow, that gets a random cow, believe me, that is what it does. And then I'm going to say response type HTML, and, and here 
I'm going to put it into pre-formatted tags so the ASCII shows. And I'm just going to show the random cow, OK? Create a random cow app. It's amazing. Uh, this is why I flew 24 hours to get here. Um, so let's do it. Um, site, I'll just do it locally. You can believe me that it works. Um, and of course, localhost is what we had. If I go to cows, it says undefined. <laughs> Where, where's my typo? Tell me. Where? Where? Uh, can I spell? No. Wait, wait, wait. OK, there we go. Yay! Let's do it again. Thank you. I did that on purpose to get your sympathy votes. There we go! Cows! We have cows. Excellent. So that's HTTPS. Uh, those are HTTPS routes, right? Those are web routes. You can also do web sockets with it just as easily. OK? So you can actually, um, here in my dynamic folder, if I created a web socket root folder, and I went in there and I said, for example, um, let's create an echo socket. Do you all know what a web sockets are? You can talk, you can basically create a chat app, for example, using web sockets. Um, so maybe I should show you that actually. How many minutes do I have left? Do I have a couple of minutes left? Okay, let's just do a chat. Let's jump right into chat. Uh, so you want to make a chat app, okay? Let's do this. Let's see in a couple of minutes. Ah, it's going to be fun. Okay, so I'm going to go into my code editor again, and I'm going to take my chat. Now, the thing that's different here is I'm going to say module exports equals, um, I need to use a full function declaration here for reasons, um, and I'm going to get a reference to the WebSocket, and I'll have a reference to the request here, okay? And in it, on that WebSocket, I'm going to say on message, let's do something with that message. What we're going to do is we're going to say this, on this WebSocket server, this is, good, this is a bit that I can actually simplify. Um, this uh, WebSocket server for the chat route, um, get the clients, get all the clients that are connected, okay? Um, and then on them, send the message. I think I got that right. All right, let's see. We will find out. Now I'm going to go into a browser. And I'm just going to open up my uh, window here. Can you see that? OK, let's create a um, web socket. Actually, you know what? Let me do this in two browsers so you can see it. Um, I'm going to say the new web socket and chat. And it says, oh. One thing you need to do, though, this I haven't figured out yet. You actually have to start the server, or else it doesn't work. Um, let's try that again. And then we have a connection to the WebSocket server. Um, on message, we're doing this really kind of rough, OK? I'm just going to, when a message comes in, I'm saying put it into the console log, OK? And I'm going to send the message. Hello. Can you all see this? All right. Let's see. Uh, what happened here? What happened here? Client send is not a function. <laughs> never do live coding. Just never do it. Never. It's horrible. Sorry. Clients. Uh, okay. Here's one I did earlier. Let's see. Um, LS. Backup. Demo. <laughs> Let's see. I wrote the whole damn thing as well, and I don't know how to use it. Isn't that great? Don't ever feel bad about that. Um, 
Okay, what have I done wrong here? Um, basic chat, dynamic, WSS, chat.js, uh, client, <laughs> I'm an idiot. All right, clients is an array, so we need to actually get the client, and then there we can say client send message. Um, if that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry about it. Just, just look at how little code there is. Um, let's try this again. And I'm in Vivaldi. Let's, uh, let's clear this. I'm going to create my WebSocket to chat. And then I'm going to say on message, let's put it onto the console log. And then we send hello. And we get hello back. Did you see it? Now, if in this one I do the same thing and I say new web socket, all right, we're doing this, we're doing this, people. And I say on message equals console log, and I say w send yo, watch what happens. I get yo here, you get yo here as well. With an interface on top of this, it would be a great chat thing. I don't have time to show you that, though. <sighs> So that's Site.js. It's just out. Download it. Play with it. You can see how you can just start very easily. You don't need to have all this bullshit plumbing to get started, right? We need more of you. This is, I'm a designer. I'm also a developer, but I'm a designer. We have to understand that to fix these problems, we have to understand our whole medium. And our medium includes code. We need you to understand this, but we also can make it easier for ourselves as well. So the reason for all of this we are at a point in our existence where we are faced with multiple existential crises, right? We have a climate crisis. We have an ecosystem crisis. To this today, I am adding that we have a personhood crisis, and all of these are related. It is up to us, as the people who make the everyday things, to make sure that the things we make do not contribute to these crises, but maybe even actually go to solving some of them and making people's lives better. And I hope that you will join me. I hope you will take a look at what we're doing with the Small Technology Foundation. Um, I hope that you will support us, whether that's by becoming a patron or using what we have or taking it or advocating for it. And I hope we can build this bridge from where we are right now, which I don't think any of us really want to be here, you know, to a future where we as a species can go beyond this narrow-minded, short-sighted navel-gazing that we're engaged with, with destroying our habitat, with wars, with all of this crap, to exploring the potential of our species within the endless expanse of the universe. That's what I hope we can do together. Thank you so much.